names. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 40. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And today, we're going to be talking about The Rules of the Game, the 1939 Jean Renoir film, also known as La Règle de Jeu, and uh, Gamer, the 2009 Brian Taylor and Mark Neveldine picture. Now, Malcolm programmed this here double feature. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why you made me watch these films? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm not going to lie. The main uh, connective tissue is that they both have the word game in them. Pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. um, I guess they're both a little bit about like aristocrats and like kind of their um, questionable morals, but... That's about as you know much connection that I could find. Well, both yeah. of these are yeah. movies that live in a society. True, and <laughs> that is for sure. You They're know? commenting on that. There's, yeah. I think, uh, some direct lines of dialogue, such as like societies have rules, is something said <laughs> early on in Rules of the Game, uh, and then. Um, you know, we live in society kind of takes on a double meaning in gamer uh, mm-hmm. when the big techno fascist guy says that because, of course, he does have his AI game or his VR rather game called uh, society. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I think it'd be fun to tackle a canon classic. I mean, rules of the game constantly polls like top five films of all time. You know, what's the extended clip take? You know, <laughs> what a, what would our sight and sound ballot look like? I hate to say it. Citizen Kane a little better. <laughs> uh, I'll give Kane. I'll give Kane, Vertigo, and Tokyo Story. Yeah, I'll take those three over yeah. rules of the game. But you know what? That's maybe you know. Let's not let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving Kane brain, and I'm calling game lame. <laughs> now, rules of the game is not a lame film. Uh, it's a good film, and uh, I've seen a couple Jean Renoir pictures up to this point. I saw a Day in the Country. And uh, La Bête Humaine. Both of those are great. A Day in the Country, even in its unfinished form, is like pretty much a masterpiece. So I'm wondering, why did this one kind of not do anything for me? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's kind of uh, commenting on maybe something specific at the time that doesn't translate now. I don't. I don't quite. Know. Maybe that's not it. But uh... I mean, I feel like to to interject as to why to analyze your psyche yeah. uh, for a bit. I feel like it could be similar in like uh, the way that you weren't hot on Metropolitan. That's exactly what I, I was, was thinking. thinking. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking it because you know both of these films show the uh, the moral depravity of the bourgeoisie that is hidden by their good manners, and like I get that as a concept, and I think you know this one is obviously much better than the Whit Stillman film because Jean Renoir is clearly a master of the form of filmmaking. There's not a wasted shot in this film, you know? There's not a wasted cut. All of the blocking both feels natural and is so precise to get all the necessary information in the frame. However, all that information, I don't know. It's just like the the farce of it seems almost unnecessary because the messaging of it is clear within the first half hour, kind of, before the farce itself even really begins. Yeah, although I I will say like I feel like this movie kind of leaves things a little bit ambiguous and um kind of reading some of the production history I guess a lot of this was improved mm-hmm. and I feel like where the ambiguity comes is where uh, if Renoir is condemning these rules or not because you know um this the, you know the characters do bad things in this movie but 
I'm not saying Renoir lets him off the hook, but you know that famous line, "Everyone has their reasons." Yeah. Renoir's definitely, you know, he's hearing both sides. He's given <laughs> he's given both his ears to the issues. Jean Renoir says, "All sides matter." <laughs> One shot uh, that I want to take at this movie, uh, even though I really liked it, this is my second time around with it i watched it very young because it was one of those like sight and sound like yeah. one of the hits that you have to see and it totally flew over the head of like a 12 year old me mm-hmm. um but i i don't like that uh, at the end of this renoir cuts himself off a piece of the pussy pie he gets <laughs> like he's the <laughs> he's ultimate i mean obviously there's some things that get in the way of that mm-hmm. but like he 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 gets off pretty good in this yeah octave and i i gotta say though renoir's portrayal of that character octave it's a pretty great performance no absolutely mm-hmm. it's Him fantastic getting stuck in the bear suit is like really <laughs> funny i that was my favorite scene of the movie but the thing is it comes after you know they're putting on a show for the audience it's just like i get you know the meaning of getting into costumes and doing a little farcical uh song and dance during your farce movie to you know (laughs) represent the masks and costumes that these people the fronts that these people put up every day to conform by the rules of this upper class or upper crust society it's just kind of lost on me on a pure enjoyment level Mm -hmm. (laughs) which it comes and goes though because as i said renoir is a clear master so there's you know 20 minute chunks of the film where I'm completely taken with just the way that he frames characters and mm-hmm. then his, you know, the camera isn't moving all of the time, but the camera movements are so fluid and so, I don't know, they, they build momentum within these scenes in a way that the actual text doesn't, for me at least. Yeah, I, I think, with, you know, the rules that these people follow, mm-hmm. you know, I think Renoir, you know, he shows, you know, ultimately kind of leads to some, you know, situations that are artificial kind of like at the end of the movie with yeah. Christine going back to, uh, there's so many people in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's one complaint yeah, I yeah. have. Yeah, too hard to cut yeah, track of. Well, no. I think that's one, I, that's one of my, you know, uh, big enjoyments of this movie is kind of like the sprawling nature of it and all these different characters and yeah. how the, you know, they interact with each other and how like, you know, the, the servant class, you know, interacts with the rich one yeah. and you know, how it, it weaves and, you know, well, I mean, speaking of the servants and rich characters being, uh, woven together, we should just say kind of what the premise of the film is. Uh, so a group of aristocrats, uh, gather for a weekend at one of their rich friends mansion. And the thing that Renoir does is he depicts this, equally through showing both these rich people and the people that work at this mansion uh and you know a recipe for success Uh, (laughs) no because it it makes sense it's like everything that this movie is doing is checking a box that means it's good Mm -hmm. for me in my head like intel i can intellectualize uh, every decision that Renoir is making mm-hmm. in, you know, the shape that this film takes narratively. I, I get it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I got to make sure that you people listening know, I do get this movie. <laughs> it's, not, it's not going over my head. I get it. Yeah, I like when um, the bourgeoisie, like, I think there's a lot of nuance in the critique because you get to see moments where the bourgeoisie is clearly aware of when they're employing the rules and when they aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, like... Andre and Robert like they're all sort of aware of the sucking and fucking that's going on behind the scenes 
Um, and I think some of the funniest moments are when they're sort of like commenting on the spectacle of it all. Like after they get into the big fight yeah. um, in it, they're like sort of like, oh, well, you, you've got a good left hook kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of depth there because the characters have it's not just like, oh, these bourgeois like fucks are unaware of what's going on. They are aware of some of it and like not conscious of others and i think it makes it like pads out like a pretty um compelling critique yeah and i mean i think that's part of the reason why the film is like hard to talk about because there's so much nuance to it yeah i mean what part of the critique is you know uh like one character is studying what she calls pre-columbian art and by that they mean native Mm -hmm. american and it's just like these small differences like that where they uh their ideas about the world are about as closed off as their ideas about just like the other people in their society who aren't, you know, them who aren't mm-hmm. aristocrats. And like the, the class line that divides, you know, half the characters in this film is so thickly drawn, obviously. Uh, and the, the point of the film, I guess you could say, eh, I don't want to say the point of the film, but you know, a goal of the film is to dissolve it through just, you know, they're all humans. They're all, mm-hmm. they all have similar things that they all do. Uh, and obviously uh, it's just how they go about doing them, whether they're hiding them, hiding the, their moral failings with manners, or if they're just crude working class servants, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I get the aim of the satire, as I've said, uh, <laughs> I can't stress this enough. You motherfuckers I understand the text of the film. Uh, there's a scene early on where I believe his name is Marceau. Is he the guy that you see get hired about a third of the way the in this picture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I did quite like that scene. I mean, it, it didn't make me feel good to watch rabbits get killed on camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they're rabbit hunting, I guess as practice for their uh, the pheasant hunt that they'll go on later in the picture, uh, you see a man Marceau get like caught, you know, poaching. Uh, they're rabbits and then it turns out you know uh, the big boss is okay with them and you see kind of the the hierarchy of like you know the power structure I guess of this aristocracy it's so detailed in how these people work with each other you know Uh, the the totem pole I guess is pretty well defined and uh, yeah every time I like think about this movie uh, the text becomes more like I don't want to say more clear, but more clearly nuanced. Like mm-hmm. it becomes almost more obscured what some scenes are trying to accomplish. Uh, and yeah, I got I got to give it up to Renoir, even <laughs> though I didn't love this movie because clearly he's doing something. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think this falls. I mean, I'm not a Renoir expert, but this movie does the tone of this movie does remind me of another satire of his. Uh, Baudu is saved from drowning. Which is a uh, you know a little bit more aggressive in its class critique of the, you know bourgeoisie or whatever, mm-hmm. and you know this yeah this tone could be you know a little bit off-putting and it's kind of similar to you know your your umbrage with Metropolitan. There's mm-hmm. a lot of you have to hear a lot of people, you know, talk talk about like they know things and stuff like that. And you know I think what stands out to me is like the particular uh, racism in this film. There's always yeah. like there's like scenes of like four different types of racism. Yeah, which is pretty funny. <laughs> Um, most notably I, to me was, uh, I forgot which two characters are saying this to each other, but they're both agreeing that the Muslims know how to treat women. Like yeah. that's, that's the right way. That's mm-hmm. a, that's almost like, that's a right wing take you see 
lurking around <laughs> now, you know? I mean, oh, to speak to a point you mentioned earlier about you weren't sure about the necessity of the farce um, mm-hmm. in the, the middle and towards the end of it, I feel like that um, really, like, hits home the point of the ending for me and part of why I really like it is that like it's absurd and we all get like a laugh and whatnot but they all like these rich fucks like sort of get off pretty scot-free for their like um yeah. like portion of it and i think like it wouldn't work as well for me if there wasn't that sort of moral reckoning then at the end where it's like yeah like someone dies like I mean, I don't want to say the most likable character. Yeah, but, like, but the guy who's introduced in the beginning as a hero just mm-hmm. for like doing a good deed, not a good deed, but doing, doing something kind of impressive, doing something fucking flying cool. a fucking yeah. plane. Oh, he's, he's a cool aviator guy. I'm know? sure any of us could have done that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, by now, our technology, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, he gets killed because he doesn't play by the rules. He's, yeah. you know, he's outspoken for his love when you know he should just be keeping it under the table just be scuzzy like Keep everyone it on else. the dl and you the just, dms why don't, why don't you just lie like everyone else <laughs> that's kind of the the rules that they're playing by <laughs> which is you know it's kind of funny and you see these characters try to um you know momentarily break the rules or just grasp onto something that they know almost you know from the jump is gonna fall through their hands yeah so the film does take place uh on the eve of world war Two, and that's mm-hmm. another thing where it's like it's kind of just adding more meaning if you're buying into it and if you're not it's just kind of there like mm-hmm. uh, on the eve of you know the world being partially destroyed by uh you know bad guys <laughs> <laughs> damn this is the best retelling of world war ii <laughs> uh we see some pretty uh bad people <laughs> yeah that the violence that's about to happen is being expressed through, you know, even these rich people lashing out and I, starting to hit each other. I think that is actually like something Armand Dwight said in his review, because yeah. I did skim because he has multiple five star reviews of this. Yeah. Uh, and he said something about, you know, uh, the war that is still going on in the bedroom or something <laughs> like that or within, you know, lovers or something yeah. like that. And it's like. Yeah, I guess I get that. You know, it is made pretty clear in the beginning that the idea of uh, marriage and this is kind of just a sham Mm -hmm. and like everyone's, as you said, sucking and fucking and like, you know, it's another thing where it's like, yep, you checked that box, (laughs) Jean Renoir, you got that one right. It's uh, it's a good point. Mm-hmm. But is it a good movie? Damn. Yes, it is. It's a good movie. It's a cuck uh, screwball. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I feel like also it's just the expectations were just too much. Like obviously, part of no film is gonna hit that way. Like the like Citizen Kane. The first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, it's good. But mm-hmm. and then I see more Wells films. I'm like, oh, now now I get it a little more. And you know, uh, or Tokyo Story. You know, the first time I was like, well, you know, it's not a best ever. And then, yeah, it turns out, obviously, Ozu (laughs) is like the god. Um, But this one, I don't know, even having seen some Renoir and like having my expectations lowered from like, yeah, it's not going to be the best movie ever, like Sight and Sound or whatever Mm -hmm. says it is. uh, I don't know. I just really never got on the same wavelength as Renoir here. And so it's probably more of a criticism of myself as a viewer than him as a filmmaker. Yeah. 
but I'm I'm coming in with this one at a nice three bullets, a nice even keel where, you know, you give it the benefit of the doubt on the classic status. And then you think about it on a technical level. Yeah, it's perfect. He doesn't mi- he doesn't miss a beat. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Jean Renoir has all the right moves, uh, <laughs> but like it just doesn't coalesce into uh, like a thing that I can actually latch onto and enjoy and instead have to hold kind of at a great distance and a further distance as the film progresses to the point where the climactic farce doesn't really do anything for me. The death of the most likable character. Uh, and you know mm-hmm. me, I don't fucking care about likable characters, but yeah. in this one, you know, you like to see at least one good person, <laughs> but him dying is just like, yeah, whatever. like I get why they're doing all these things. It yeah. just feels so detached uh, from like the emotions that were felt in the other two Renoir films that like, mm-hmm. yeah, it can't really go above a, a three bulleter for me. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of detachment in this movie. I mean, even the way a lot of these screwball scenes are shot, you know, kind of like a distant master shot. But I kind of do enjoy the distance of like you see like there's especially one scene where they're all going to bed in the hallway and they're all kind of, you know, literally as the character's storylines interweave, they're weaving, you know, from, you know, in and out of each other's bedrooms. And like Mm -hmm. they kind of look like bugs scrambling around a nice little like playground or something like that. Um, But I'm going to go four bullets. Uh, you know, I like this a good amount. It's definitely not my favorite Renoir, and it's not. I feel like I like him in different modes. Maybe when he's a little bit more blunt and like neo-realistic, I think he's you know a little bit more enjoyable for me. Like Tony is like a bona fide classic for me. Um, but you know, it's it's good nonetheless. You know, maybe the canon is right. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm I'm very adamant that this is a dumb guy podcast. We're just, I mean, not to speak. You all are very smart gentlemen. I'm just speaking as my from my place on the show. Mm-hmm. I'm a dumb guy, and I calls it like I sees it. Um, <laughs> um, and this this time I'm calling it um, as pretty damn good. I like I Renoir is still like a pretty big gap for me, but this really made me want to check out a lot more. I feel like around the time when I was getting into cinephilia as a young lad all the class uh, stuff and just like the general like style of some of his other works like Malcolm was saying being more neorealist I didn't really have much of an interest in but now I really want to check out a lot more because this hit uh, pretty heavy the second time around for me and uh, yeah I'm going to say four bullets on this one nice Um, we will be right back to talk about gamer so Plug in your controllers. Get a handle on your joystick. <laughs> Say bad words into your heads. <laughs> Welcome back to Extended Clip. Before we get into the Neville Dean and Taylor joint, uh, any other recent viewings you want to catch us up on? Yeah, um, you know, this is a new segment, you know, until I stop paying for this, which I might after this month. It's been pretty rough, the movies I've seen so far, but welcome to the A-list, everyone. (laughs) Um, AMC A-list. I saw The Invisible Man at uh, the AMC Santa Monica 7. And uh, <laughs> rolled into town for that one. Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I just happened to be in town, and uh, <laughs> um, 
what do you call it? Quick theater review. I reclined my seat all the way to its full extent, and it didn't recline back, so it was just stuck there. Um, <laughs> there was a guy snoring behind me the whole time <laughs> during the movie. Um, started snoring when the trailer started, <laughs> and and there's like twenty. I showed up on time. There's twenty two minutes of trailers. Jesus trailers Christ. are what so fucking long. At each trailer, I was like, "When's this gonna end?" Um, the Invisible Man, not a good movie. You know, the critics are wrong again. Who knew? Uh, it's so fucking boring. I really, I every review I read of this, I still like. I still don't know what people like about it. It's one of those movies. Damn. Um, uh, and I wanted to like this movie. I liked Talay Winnell's last effort, Upgrade, which was like a mm. nice, uh, you know, low-rent cyberpunk kind of sleazy thriller. And I kind of liked uh, kind of how it was kind of dumb. It was kind of dumb and, you know, it didn't try to say too much. And it was just a nice, good, you know, competent, you know, fun time. And, you know, this one, you know, it's heavily metaphorical. It's about the effects of gaslighting. And, you know, it's just uh, it just doesn't do much for me. Um so yeah, Invisible Man, uh, not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, JT? Um, yeah, I know. I just after my picks last week, people were just rampantly complaining to me. Will you get off this politics BS? <laughs> like, what? What the fuck do you think you are, Rush Limbaugh? Just chomping, just yapping, flapping my damn gums about fucking politics. Well, I'm here again oh, no. to talk about more politics. What are you, Trevor Noah? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, in the sense that I am not very funny. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I watched You Got to Move. Uh, it's a 1985 uh, documentary about different communities in uh, southern uh, in the southern United States. Um, getting involved in different like grassroots movements and reflecting on like sort of activism in the 60s. It was a, a rare find on TCM. I see there are uh, five reviews on Letterboxd Damn. and 58 members have seen it. So with those, I'm all like when TCM ups, up, uh, ups the obscure shit, I'm always curious to peep it, oh, yeah. especially if it tickles uh, my interest just like this one. And I think it like hit a similar note uh, that Harlan County hit for me. I mean, not as good, more of like the cookie cutter like style documentary. A mm -hmm. lot of like footage of interviews and like um, old footage of people reflecting on their activism. But I think one way this doc really succeeds is it ties a lot of movements together in an intersectional way where it's like some of more like striking minors in like Kentucky and then it sort of brings in the civil rights movement mm -hmm. along with that and it at the core it really talks about and encourages the importance of getting involved in your community. And that's sort of like the unifying theme between all of these movements is that like if you see a problem and you like seek out to change it and like the act of getting involved in and of itself makes you feel better because you're actively trying to help. And I think um, trying to spread that message of like community organizing is really important um, and it tied a lot of movements together in a really effective way so it was a good one nice that sounds interesting what about you eddie what have you seen um i've seen a few films since we last met one of them is abel ferrara's 2017 documentary piazza vittorio 
this is kind of a, uh, a mosaic of Piazza Vittorio, which is Rome's biggest public square. And it's a very, it's kind of like um, an, a documentary we talked about on, I feel like maybe on our Best of the Decade episode uh, in Jackson Heights. Maybe not, though. Maybe I just mentioned it on the pod. Maybe yeah. maybe I didn't even mention it on the pod. But if you know me, you know, in Jackson Heights, it's a classic. Uh, <laughs> but only in the sense that this is very much like a uh, a very small area that like could represent you know, a much bigger group of people because of its diversity. Uh, there are people from all over, uh, you know, all these different immigrants who are working to survive in this area, and Abel Ferrara is one of them. You know, he's trying to make a movie just to, you know, survive there. Uh, we talk to his new neighbor, Willem Dafoe. Uh, that's a cool scene where Willem Dafoe is just, like, walking around, in, like, the square and only one guy recognizes him and it's like the classic rich guy you know not being recognized uh, it, it really humbles me you know <laughs> but Willem Dafoe is such a good guy that like you hear him say that stuff you know him and Abel are friends it's like he gets the pass for life yeah uh, but at multiple points Abel Ferrara complains about not having a job and like he like tilts the camera up into his face at one point and asks uh, I gotta have a fuck I gotta get a fucking job man uh, and that's right after like an interview subject just like walks out on him when he says i'm not a journalist i'm a film director there's a big fucking difference <laughs> and half of this movie is him just trying to get interview subjects to stay with him he's like bargaining you know five euros for five minutes like to get these people to talk to him on camera about their life as an immigrant and some people are saying you know it's great these people have helped me out some people have told more of the truth saying we have to work very hard and a lot of workers rights are getting cut and uh you know, uh, there's one like big uh, celebration going on with, you know, Latin American immigrants who are in this Roman square. And uh, one of them in a very clean New York Mets jersey uh, talks to Abel, at, like specifically about uh, neoliberalism being essentially a new form of slavery and kind of the the way that the film goes back and forth between actual like theory and just people's everyday lived experiences are great uh abel does not shy away from the very reactionary nature of a lot of people who live there and have been there for a long time who think that you know they're, they're all putting on a nice face and saying oh you know the immigrants they're not all bad people but uh you know then one does something and you think oh why does it and it's like oh geez he's talking to some pretty racist fucking people uh and it's just that's italy man yeah no it's just real life it's like as much as we progress uh the reactionary end of the wing is obviously gonna still be there and fighting back against it uh so it's not exactly an optimistic portrait despite the fact that you have all these people you know all these uh egyptian immigrants who run pizzerias and stuff like that who are able to succeed and you also have immigrants uh from other parts of the world who you know have to be minimum wage busboys or can't get uh can't get work or food at all you know and so it's a pretty depressing movie in general, despite being there, like some pretty funny moments and some pretty touching stuff. You know, uh, it's always very clear that Abel Ferrara kind of is the protagonist of the movie, him uh, moving through 
this, you know, Piazza Vittorio and figuring out what his place as an Italian American back as a European immigrant now, what his place is there. And uh, it's really fascinating and it clocks in at a clean 69 minutes. So I'd check it out if I were you. Next up, Gamer, 2009, Neveldeen and Taylor. This is my first Neveldeen and Taylor joint. Uh, I really, I, I saw Crank 2 High Voltage like way back, but I barely remember it. So I'm counting this as my first one. Yeah, this is my first as well. I saw the first like 20 minutes of Crank with my roommates uh, in the last few months. And I'm, after seeing this, I'm eager for the rest of the film as well. Wait, it took you the last few months to watch the first 20 minutes no, of Crank? No, <laughs> the last few, like a while ago, I watched the first 20 minutes, but I was too damn tired. Watching movies is hard. It, trust me. Yeah, yeah, I was hey, this is to labor. Today. Yeah. Um, I mean, Neville Dean and Taylor are great. I mean, um, you know, p- people look at the vulgar arturist movement and, uh, you know, these are just, you know, separate that from that. These are just some vulgar guys who are oh, yeah. definite auteurs. These are the vulgar auteurs. And I mean, I feel like this movie and uh, maybe a little bit less so in the crank movies, but this one especially, you know, kind of... Um, matches kind of like a pathos that you know i'd like the podcast to have kind of you know very <laughs> grotesque very uh <laughs> vulgar but you know kind of secretly woke and really yeah. informed you know well that's the thing about this film is as like trashy as you want to call it it's a film about fucking prison slave labor essentially mm-hmm. uh an exploitation of prisoners and the u.s government backing that and, uh, hey, that doesn't have to be a sci-fi futuristic concept. That's happening every day now. Yeah, I mean, our uh, our hero protagonists are a, a felon and a sex worker. It's true. And, uh, you know, one scene that comes to mind is uh, when uh, the Gerard Butler's wife, who is, you know, plays in, like, this Sims-like virtual world where, you know, she's, you know, regularly degraded, um, is trying to get custody of her kid from this child lawyer. And this scene kind of plays both ways. Like there's like still kind of like a weird funny aspect to it. Like there's a weird laugh that the lawyer does in the middle of the scene. But it does kind of take this consideration seriously, you know, of, you know, this sex worker should have her children. You know, her job is, you know, somewhat of value. Yeah, I think that one bureaucratic worker that she sees uh, for that case is like a good encapsulation of, where this film sees America going politically, mm-hmm. uh, which is very, very uh, reactionary, <laughs> very mm-hmm. far to the right, which, look, it's a bleak outlook, but it's a pretty realistic one, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Malcolm and I were talking uh, before we started recording about... Where like, the fuck was I? <laughs> <laughs> taking a whiz. Oh, okay. Um, about Southland Tales um, be- uh, being like sort of the obvious comparison for this, but I think why this and Southland Tales both really work in their vulgarity and just like the lack of subtlety and just being brutal and aggressive is because I think the moment they're trying to comment on is just so fucking stupid and just like broke brains like Mm -hmm. bullshit that it's like there is no point I mean it's like when I don't know smug liberals try and like satirize Trump and all that fucking horseshit. Yeah. It's just like there's no point in being like coy or like passive mm-hmm. about like the contemporary issues that this is addressing. It's like disgusting and ugly and gamer is rightfully like just as aggressive and like problematic as the things it's speaking to. 
Yeah, I mean, to get into what the film is, uh, there's a man named Castle. Is that his last name? Ken Castle. Ken Castle. Yeah. Or Cable. Is it Cable? No, Cable is Gerard oh, Butler's yeah. Avatar. Or, yeah, yeah. You know. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, sorry. sorry. So, Ken Castle is, as I called him earlier, a techno-fascist, a genius game programmer. And this is kind mm-hmm. of also a parallel to Ready Player One, where kind of the mm-hmm. central figure, other than the protagonist, is this like you know mythical game designer billionaire. Uh, but here, the evil side of him is much more obvious than in Ready Player One, which I used to give more of a benefit of the doubt to until I saw this movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's no gamer, for sure. <laughs> uh Yeah, so he had a game called Society, and still does at this point in the in the film. I almost called it a game. Uh, (laughs) We can call this a game. Yeah. Uh, So at the at the point of history in this game, Society has you know been like one of the most popular things there is, and it's basically a Sims like game where you control an avatar, but this avatar is acted out by a real human, and you just have all of these different camera angles on them, and you never see the cameras when you're watching these people play, but then you see. The actual player who, in this case, the man who controls uh, Gerard Butler's uh, wife's character is, you know, your typical uh, gamer caricature. He's like a big fat guy who's immobile and is like really horny and just like gross and sweaty and stuff. Uh, And he has like nine monitors that all have different angles on his character. Uh, And so... This game, if you didn't think it was bad enough where all of these, you know, humans are forced to have sex with each other because the horny humans controlling their avatars feel like it, uh, it came out with a new game called Slayers, uh, where it's basically a, a shoot 'em up where the avatars, uh, just like in, so- in society, are real people. But these real people are death row inmates so the people who watch the game because also the esports broadcasts of slayers is about as big as the world cup uh in this film mm-hmm. it shows all over the world everyone is tuned into this uh these are death row inmates so what the film is posing you know morally is that like or the people in this film morally believe they kind of have it coming and they deserve it and that's why they're allowed to be you know exploited to their death on television oh yeah and if the death row inmates like do 30 battles um they're like released from prison yeah Mm -hmm. but you know maybe similar to you know a little game called life uh, <laughs> these guys can't win. You can't win this game. Yeah. Ultimately, there's the you know the system will be rigged against you. They'll uh, insert a Terry Crews figure yeah. uh, to kick your ass. <laughs> yeah, and um, there's really you really can't you know trust the system for what it's worth yeah. at all. And that's and that's a, a very powerful message that gamer has is that there's you know complete distrust in the system is you know uh, just being sane. Oh yeah, and much like real life, the a slayer and the system in gamer are just controlled by like just the most passive shitty rich kids yeah like uh cable is controlled by simon i think his name is and the intro to his character is so fucking funny (laughs) where he's just like they're like women trying to like uh flirt with him and like show their tits and he's just like flipping through and is just like through different programs like Gay, 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 tardily gay. Hmm. Swarm. Swarm. The latest innovation from Browning. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a 17-year-old kid, vulgar gamer. Exactly what you, you know, think is on the other end of the console when you get uh, fucking domed in Modern Warfare. Uh, just, a, just a dumb, rich kid using slurs. And he controls a man who was put on, uh, you know, death row uh, for doing a murder that we then learn, you know, later on Mm -hmm. in the film, uh, he was not in control of his body, you know, just like how all of these avatars in the game are Mm -hmm. controlled, uh, you know, neurologically by Mm -hmm. this techno-fascist presence who is, you know, pretty much just the most powerful person in the world of this film or game. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he was basically, you know, wrongfully uh, convicted, so you're supposed to root for him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, you know emotional core action movie who fucking cares it's a kick-ass action movie Mm -hmm. i'll tell you what because these battle scenes that gerard butler is unwillingly going through as he's being controlled by this 17 year old Mm -hmm. douchebag are shot in a way that like kinetic doesn't even begin to describe yeah uh the way that each cut has you know two opposing camera movements so often mm-hmm. and sound on cuts and all of these crazy uh, digital textures within the cinematography that I had really never seen before mm-hmm. are just, you know, it feel it must have felt like being in 1939 and watching Rules of the Game. <laughs> <laughs> this shit's way ahead of its time. No, Neville Dean and Taylor are abrasive stylists yeah. to like to a great end. I mean, yeah. these war scenes, you know, particularly the one that are just bleached out that just use this extremely white color palette are insane. I mean, you, you see a lot of like cameras just zipping around, like jerking. And yeah, stuff it's like, like that. late period Tony Scott on Zero Cal Monster. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. If you know, if you were to give one uh, filmmaker, in this case, uh, you know, two filmmakers, mm-hmm. the heir to the Tony Scott crown, I mean, you'd have to give it to Neville Dean and Taylor. Yeah, and obviously, like, it is a passing of the of the crown, if you will, because mm-hmm. of the way that they're using digital here compared mm-hmm. to Tony Scott pushing celluloid to its last wills before he passed yeah. away. Uh, and, yeah, so the action in this is incredible, and, of course, they don't fucking tone it down when it's a non-action scene. Yeah. Uh, when characters are just walking and talking and you're getting exposed to the this version of reality, you're just never going to get an angle that's not weirdly canted or just, like, uh, washed out with color. Or, you know, once in a while you'll get, like, a traditionally beautiful frame, and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this is really nice. And then it just smacks you in the face with, like, a weird close-up with a with an hud from the video game on top of it Mm -hmm. uh and you're just like yeah these are new images these are things i've never seen before and new not just new images by themselves but new cuts and new ways of presenting fluid and chaotic action cinema Mm -hmm. and the actors uh match this abrasive manner i mean oh yeah uh michael c scott uh, Michael C. Hall. Michael C. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what she said. <laughs> uh, yeah, Michael Hall. Uh, I mean, has an aggressively like goofy Southern plantation owner accent. It's so good. And he is foghorn leghorning it up mm-hmm. in this. And uh, I wanted to read a quote um, from Ignati Vishnevsky about this film, who's a big champion of this film. Of course, he and, is. And uh, and you know, speaking to like, you know, how he said they'll do some, be- or how you said. You know, they'll occasionally pull out a beautiful frame. And, uh, you know, this is his quote. There are a lot of people out there making serious movies that can't direct actors half as well as Neville Dean and Taylor can. And people who try artful that couldn't pull off all the 
chiaroscuro of the mansion scene, which puts more or less everyone who's cited Jacques Tourneur as an influence to shame. <laughs> Damn. And it's real. It's like, real. that is not a pull. Like, when mm-hmm. Gerard Butler is walking into that mansion and he's completely a shadow, yeah. and you have that white wall behind him when he's on that little... Uh, like not banister that little walkway you know and mm-hmm. it's split uh vertically into two levels with michael c hall and his dancer slash fighters next <laughs> yeah. to him uh that is one of the most beautiful looking uh pieces of complete fucking nonsense i've ever seen yeah. <laughs> it just adds like a level of intensity and like it's the extreme nature of the film yeah like the final like sort of uh b- battle between uh Hall and Butler is on like a basketball court. Yeah, for really so no good. reason. It's mm-hmm. it's fantastic. Yeah. it's almost it's quite dreamlike actually. That last confrontation, in the sense that the way that the scenery changes with just like a turn of the camera, or mm-hmm. in the case of the basketball, they're walking through what looks just like cosmos basically, and then you see what looks like it would be a doorway, just this rectangular sliver into a basketball court and one of them walks and then it cuts and you're in the basketball court set, you know, Mm -hmm. and the, the moving of locations in this is very, very strange, like not a normal dream (laughs) and not the way that someone like Lynch or throwing it back to the dusty stuff. Buñuel would do uh, like dream (laughs) realism. This is just like, it's a nightmare uh, and it's a video game and mm-hmm. it's I guess that's what I want movies to be now is yeah. nightmare video games. Yeah. And like there's I mean the way this movie could revel in its nastiness time yeah. is nightmarish. I mean talking yeah. about the society game and you know the sadistic gamers who control the players there's a crazy scene where you just see two uh, you know fucking lazy gamers just ram two women into each other (laughs) until like they bleed and you know this extends to you know even in the real world too i mean the club scene comes to mind where everyone's just eating bugs yeah (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's awesome like it's just um and you know you know this movie's good because it has a club scene and a rave scene yeah oh my god yeah i want to live in the rave from gamer yeah uh and another location that i do not want to live in jesus christ the beginning of this film not the very beginning but early on you see the prison that these guys stay in yeah uh, the exterior shots because usually when you see gerard butler and gang uh when they're not in one of their levels one of their action levels they're basically just in this like convoy van on the way to it uh but early on you see them basically on a chain gang in this like white sand prison and the way that neville dean and taylor are able to use the space to like Mm. dwarf the characters uh within this giant you know empty dead space of a desert is astonishing you know and it really gives into like giving an actual emotional core to gerard butler's struggle in this movie uh in what feels like it would be the actual most detached movie ever Mm -hmm. there is still a very human core to it and that struggle with the human core versus you know the basically digital detachment of it is probably the most fascinating thing about it yeah i mean for a movie that's so style heavy you know banks in on its style Mm -hmm. there is a humanism to the concept of uh you know, realizing that the video game characters you control are actual people and kind of how Simon has to reckon with that is, you know, very impressive. And I mean, I don't even know what exactly it is trying to say in terms of like video gaming. Yeah. But it's like, it just, <laughs> you know, it just, it just, uh, yeah. 
didn't I'm, finish. Yeah, cut, cut, <laughs> cut the yeah. Or <laughs> I feel like this style plays into the humanism mm-hmm. because it's just like so abrasive mm-hmm. and aggressive. You're getting so many flashes of just like disgusting imagery mm-hmm. of like especially when they're in the battle there and you'll just like have one moment where they'll like zoom in like like hyper on mm-hmm. a corpse yeah and it's just it i don't know it i i squirmed a lot during this movie yeah. while also very thoroughly enjoying it yeah d- specifically uh to talk about extreme uh the extreme sports level where there's dirt bike riders flying mm-hmm. around everywhere those guys are getting set on fire, shot, and like their limbs are flying everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And all of that is just going on while Gerard Butler is just like, at that point, he's still being controlled by Simon, I mm-hmm. believe. That's the last one. And then we meet really the opposition, these hackers named humans. Yeah. Humans. Uh, humans. Is- yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, who are, you know, trying to free people from this digital form of slavery. And so what they do is they give Gerard Butler's character his full, I guess, autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Simon is like disconnected and it feels like. Uh, he's died in the game and then this you know the media that's controlled by Castle of course reports him as being dead when in fact he escaped from the game in a pickup truck that is fueled with his own vomit and piss (laughs) (laughs) one of the best you know driving type action scenes I've seen in a minute yeah you get you get kind of the taste of the den of the popular den of thieves butler as you see him uh, chug a bottle of vodka as he enters in the war and stumble up stumble about on the war ground which is great one of the best lines in the movie is before that level when he doesn't know that he's going to be you know fully sentient mm-hmm. for it uh he just asks i need you to get me something what? drunk uh yeah the the vulgarity and the humor like the lightness with which Navaldine and Taylor approach so many of the interactions here mm-hmm. is so great because of the so heavy implications of what it all means yeah. you know Well, I'd remind your audience that Slayers was put together with the full cooperation and approval of the United States federal government, that the revenue it produces is responsible for funding our entire prison system, keeping the bad guys behind bars, and that the prop was voted for by a cock-solid 68% of the American public. In an election tainted by suspected digital fraud. Uh, And, like, all of these awful implications about where the world is going to. And, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you could say it's a little juvenile, uh, but also... I don't know. I, I, I'm more inclined to agree with the doomer mindset these days. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, you know, partially there, I think this is probably what they believe, but I think Neville Dean and Taylor revel in going into the cracks and the crevices, yeah. the nasty parts of society and, you know, just going at them with full force. I mean, one interaction that comes to mind is when Simon is first hacked by Ludacris and mm-hmm. they have this interaction and, uh, Simon keeps calling him like brother and like yeah. keeps you oh. know doing like you know blackface voice to him and it's just it's so it you know it's it speaks to you know a certain type of very 2009 rich kid I'm pretty sure that is how he would talk to a, yeah like a anarchist hacker yeah exactly <laughs> and Ludacris is pretty fucking great in this yeah uh, as the face of humans yeah uh, so humans helps uh, Butler's uh, character Cable escape from the world of that game and Mm -hmm. now he needs to you know get his wife and his kid back and his wife is as we said a player in uh, society so when he first reunites with her 
she's still under the control of that uh, mm-hmm. the gamer we described earlier. Which, Great scene. Yeah, leads for some uh, pretty funny stuff where he's just like trying to tell his wife that he loves her, mm-hmm. and this like dude is all like sweaty and like trying to grab his dick <laughs> uh, it's all it's it, it kind of made me sad a little bit too like i yeah, kind of bought it i kind of bought into it yeah. yeah no butler man gerard butler is such a good actor <laughs> yeah so people need to use him right because uh, I, I watched angel has fallen and didn't really do much for me people need to understand he, you know he kind of have to play into his bozo charisma even in this movie he's not a bozo but it's yeah. like the gruffness of him exactly yeah. uh but anyway so as we said, that final showdown that takes place on the basketball court, uh, he, you know, it's an action movie. Butler has to kick ass his way mm-hmm. through all the bad guys in order to get to the real bad guy. Uh, and he finally does. And they're talking on a basketball court. And Terry Crews is there, too, who yeah. he's been trying to get Terry Crews to kill uh, Gerard Butler this whole time. So he beats up Terry Crews. And then... Uh, you know, uh, Michael C. Hall gets his classic, you know, villain speech where he does the LeBron uh, chalk thing uh, <laughs> in order to use like the particles of chalk as like a representation of what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Gerard Butler just kicks his fucking ass because yeah. he uh, he's able to break like the force field that he that uh, Castle has created against human will yeah. of harming him. And he fucking stabs him in the stomach multiple times until he's dead. And it ends with him, his wife, and his daughter in the car, and they're going into a tunnel. It's like the uh, the North by Northwest <laughs> ending. <laughs> it's exactly the North by yeah. Northwest ending. Uh, ends with a nice uh, bit of vulgar symbolism and an ode to the master of suspense. <laughs> I also love at the end after he defeats you know techno fa- or tech fascist uh, Michael C. Hall. You know, his lackeys, Hall's lackeys are hanging around and Butler's like, shut down the game, like over. And he's like, he just does a couple of clicks. He's like, all right, it's done. It's just like, (laughs) it shows how easy, like we could all be saved. (laughs) (laughs) Compare that to Ready Player One, where at the end, like after the hero has gone through a similar journey, it's just like, okay, well, um, lights out after two o'clock on Thursdays from now on. <laughs> like they make like some compromise about how yeah. long you're allowed to game. I mean, <laughs> compare the sensibilities of just like Ready Player One to Gamer, where like Gamer has the lovable, uh, you know, vulgarity of using like a Bloodhound Gang song yeah. or like a Marilyn Manson Sweet Dreams. Yeah, that slowed yeah. down Sweet Dreams. Yeah. Oh God, Amazing. so great. Where it's, you have like Ready Player One doing like the most obvious like needle drops that make me want to like, yeah. kill myself like it's just <laughs> like it's 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 infuriating like it's it, like spielberg i don't i like i i love spielberg but i don't know if he's he's well equipped to take on this subject yeah no i agree yeah <laughs> um i'm gonna give this one four bullets i think it's a legit like great movie mm-hmm. um i really want to see more neville dean and taylor i think the push and pull as we said between like the digital detachment that's also there in the text and the emotional core of the film and just the absolutely, you know, killer action that builds momentum through each set piece is exactly what I want out of a movie like this. And it's at 95 minutes, but, you know, it also has nine minutes of credits. So it's <laughs> 86 minutes. So put that in your DVD player and smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give this one four bullets, too. I mean, Neville Dean and Taylor... Um, really fit my sensibilities. I mean, they're they're legitimately creating, you know, their own cinematic language, which is, you know, whenever I see that, like it's, you know, instant admiration. Um, 
you know, just so many bags of tricks, so many tricks that they have up their sleeve and like their dedication to their own style is, uh, you know, it's very forceful and it's very enjoyable to watch. And I feel like I share, you know, maybe their love for like uh, excess and vulgarity, you mm-hmm. know, which is uh, a big plus. So, yeah, you know, who know? maybe they should team up and make another movie together because they're both flying solo now. But hey, if you're listening to this. <laughs> Um, with the best uh, basketball court scene I've since uh, I've seen since Local Legends, <laughs> I'm gonna hit this also with uh, four bullets. Damn, dude, um, we're uh, hitting up the sixth sense. Yes, nice. indeed. And to return to uh, speaking about dumb guy stuff, mm-hmm. I feel like this movie is. I mean, at surface level, you could do a very poor reading of this as juvenile and stupid. But <laughs> it's unabashed earnestness to embrace dumb guy culture and to be vulgar and in the dirt and like messy and problematic. I think you evoke a lot more truth and knowledge than some of these fucking pretentious snobs. I'm This is four bullets for me, but I'm going to say that I like this more. Uh, than rules of the game. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, me too. Probably, I had more, a better time watching it. I just want us to come out with that take. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad I gamer pilled you guys. <laughs> <Gamer> <laughs> which is just red pill. Yeah. <laughs> take the red pill. <laughs> Choose gaming. Uh, so you can always reach out to us at extendedclippodcast at gmail dot com. Our first uh, email this week comes from Adam Silver, the commissioner of the <laughs> NBA. It says, uh, "Dear NBA fan, as you know, we have temporarily suspended our season in response to the coronavirus pandemic. We made this decision to safeguard the health and well-being of fans. Blah 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 blah." Uh, the hiatus will last at least 30 days, and we intend to resume the season. God damn, dude. Yeah, and they shut down Disneyland, man. I'm so fucking pissed about that. I don't give a shit. <laughs> dude, no, dude. I mean, all the, I, I don't get to see Mickey. <laughs> Mickey, dude. Mickey's my guy. <laughs> <laughs> my annual pass is just, you know, rendered worthless. Oh, I this forgot part. that you're an AP guy, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we also got one from, it says, Major Penton, and the subject says, movies, good and bad. Hey, guys, big fan of the podcast here. Got a question for you. So far, what would you say is the worst movie you've had to watch for the show, and vice versa, which is the best? Fuck. Take care. Um, that is a kind of hard one to answer, I gotta say. Uh, I gotta because we've definitely, we've div- definitely given the five bullets quite a few times. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever gone below like one and a half. Maybe? I don't think I've done a half bullet. Yeah, I don't think I've done a half. I, shooting from the hip, I'm gonna say Crackers is probably yeah, like li- or maybe uh, um, Scent of a Woman. But Scent of a Woman was fun. In, yeah, it's in being bad. Okay, the worst movie we watched for the podcast is Rain Over Me. Probably, Ooh, yeah, that yeah. Might be. Okay. Even though it's not the least enjoyable, there is some sort of uh, you know twisted shit going on there <laughs> um it's either rain over me or kentucky fried movie probably oh, yeah those are probably bad. the two worst and then crackers is up there yeah for sure also the love guru 
the love guru is pretty bad yeah. but also i've been thinking about bumping that one up a little bit <laughs> <True>. <laughs> I and just, that's just, I just distance from the movie yeah just like you know malcolm you said last time we hung out like you just pulled up the more than word scene recently. i i have multiple i've done that multiple <laughs> times it is like just i vibe in you yeah know? it is it is a chill ass scene i fucking yeah. love that uh, the best movie we've seen for the podcast, in my opinion, is probably The Devil, probably. But I programmed uh, that one knowing it as like an all-time favorite. Mm-hmm. So the best one I watched for the first time for the podcast, probably Stray Dogs, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd have to... Or uh, The Testament of Dr. Mabusa. That one was really fucking good, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything said that... Yeah, Prairie Home Companion, as well, I want to give a shout out to one of the best i oh, mean i agree course. with what you said for uh the best we've seen yeah local legends too that's up oh there. yeah yeah um local legends definitely up there all right great um we're on twitter at extended clip 69 i'm at ipod underscore video i'm at bitchface palace i'm at tall boy thin legs and next week in title only, we're drawing a dichotomy through the United States. You can be one of two people next week. Ooh. And as we go forward, as we continue this fight, that does not look so good. So next week, we're going to be talking about Bernie, the Richard Linklater movie. Oh, hell yeah! And we're also going to be talking about Alan Dershowitz. I mean, Reversal of Fortune, the Ooh. Alan Dershowitz movie. <laughs> Perfect. So you could either be a pedophile or a Bernie Sanders supporter. Yeah. There's nothing in between. Yeah. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. We live in society. We visit society. We live in society. We live in society. We visit society. We live in society.